Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. I had to come to terms with the idea that gratitude and ambition can coexist and that you can appreciate what you have now and still want more or other or have ambition to go ahead. There's this really weird quirk of humanity. We tend to focus a whole lot more on what's not right than we focus on what's right. It's called the negativity bias, and it makes us in a persistently more bummed out state than we need to be. So today's guest, Janice Kaplan, who's also the author of a book called The Gratitude Diaries, decided to try something a little bit different. We've all heard about gratitude recently, and there's an interesting amount of research around it, but she decided to devote an entire year to a whole bunch of different, let's call them gratitude interventions, to see if she could actually literally rewire her brain and her life to just operate on a much happier, more fulfilled level on a day-to-day basis. What unfolded was pretty incredible. And we don't just explore that in today's conversation. We also explore her extraordinary journey in the media as a newscaster, as a writer, as a producer, as an editor-in-chief. And what she's been able to accomplish is pretty extraordinary. Really excited to dive into the conversation with Janice Kaplan. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. Right now, as we sit here, you have had a pretty stunning career. Um, Not that it's over. (laughs) 
But the list of accomplishments is kind of mind-blowing. And your recent exploration of gratitude on a very personal level is something that I want to get into in a fair amount of detail. But I want to take a step back in time first. So you went to school at Yale. I did. What did you actually study there? I was an American studies major, um, which at the time was a great major. Tom Wolfe, I think, had just gotten his the first PhD in American studies at Yale. Uh, no and now, as I understand it, it's the jock major. So, you know, <laughs> people think I'm a football player. I am not. <laughs> but there's an interesting tie in there, because when you came out of Yale, you made a really interesting career choice. <laughs> right. I actually started as a sports reporter. And, so um, you get... All right. Take me there. How does that happen? <laughs> well, it actually started while I was at Yale. And um, I was working one summer at the CBS radio station in Boston as a morning news reporter mm. and a news writer. And uh, the sports reporter at the time, the, the head sports guy, used to not only do the sports casts, he would also do an editorial. And he, you know, hey, let's admit it, I was a cute 19-year-old girl, okay? And he was this hot <laughs> sportscaster. And he came swaggering out of the studio one morning, and he stood in front of me, and he said, well, that was a pretty great editorial, wasn't it? I bet you couldn't do anything like that. And as with the arrogance that only a 19-year-old can have, I said, I thought it was horrible and sexist and really offensive, and you should be ashamed of talking about women that way. I don't remember exactly <laughs> what it was right, about. Right. And he said, oh, yeah, you could do better? And I said, sure. He said, okay, the editorial is yours tomorrow morning. And <laughs> that was the start of it. Um, no and yeah, and I started doing, uh, uh, he was actually a great guy, and I shouldn't be, shouldn't be teasing that way. He actually then put me on the air covering tennis uh, for CBS Radio, and I went back to Yale, and that was the year that the Giants were actually playing at Yale Bowl as Giants Stadium was being right. rebuilt. And so I covered, I covered the Giants for CBS Radio, and it was a really fun way to start, start in college. I mean, were you somebody with a deep interest in sports and athletics, Absol or was this just totally more of the editorial side that was pulling you. <laughs> Absolutely no knowledge or interest in it at all. I was actually interested in women's issues, and um, I started using sports as a way to talk about women's issues. And uh, I wrote a sports column for years for Seventeen magazine. Yeah. Hard to imagine now that Seventeen would have a sports column, but it did. And my first book was called Women in Sports. Right. So it was my way of talking about women's issues uh, through, the, through the prism of, at the time, what people figured women couldn't do, and uh, were just starting to do. So you were writing two women. Very much so. Yeah. Not not when I was doing the regular sports cast. The right. sports I mean, cast were, were guy stuff. Right, were guy yeah. stuff. But uh, but, yeah. but even but when you were doing the regular sports cast stuff, which is largely a male audience, right. in the back of your mind are you still thinking, how do I tell this story in a way that sort of like plants a different seed or allows for a different lens to most of the men who are listening to and watching this? That's interesting. I, I don't think I actually could do that when I was doing s straight sports yeah. casting. If you're, if you're talking about a tennis match or you're right. talking yeah. about a football game, probably not. But it did become interesting to me to see how how women could fit into that world. And, um, mm. you know, I was, I was just reading this morning something about women in the military, and I was reading these arguments that I thought 20 years ago had been settled. <laughs> you know, it's just it's kind of stunning to me to keep reading these same things and these same stereotypes and, and our same ability to forget that maybe what the average woman and the average man can do is indeed different, but none of us are average. <laughs> and yeah. whether you're in sports or the military, we're looking for people who aren't average and who can do different kinds of things. And our inability to understand that and accept that sort of still surprises me. Yeah, it really is. I mean, what do you think is behind that, though? Because if, it's, if we've been essentially repeating the same conversation over and over for decades now, I'd love to believe in some way we've evolved over like the last generation or so in terms of the, the public conversation, the assumptions around that. 
what do you think is keeping the conversation at the same level, even though maybe not even the conversation, but what do you think is keeping the underlying assumptions and actions? Oh, I wish I had the answer to that. I guess it's fear of some sort. Protectiveness. Uh, isn't that what we all do? Just protecting our own territory? That yeah. uh, the Marine, the guys who are in the Marines want to say, hey, we're the only Marines. Nobody can be as good as us. And if there's a woman in the Marines, that means we're not as masculine? I, I don't know. But uh, I guess there's just this fear and ignorance. <laughs> um, I can't find any good reasons that uh, that it would still exist. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Well, hopefully the, the conversation continues and the, you know, the actions continue. I, I'm assuming part of what you were talking about here also was the, we're recording this at a time where I think it was about a week ago, there's a big announcement that women are now going to be, you know, considered or admitted into combat roles right. um, in the military. And I think that kicked off this huge kind of reignited a lot of those conversations. Too. Right. And, you know, I'm not certainly not an expert in, uh, on that at all. But as I understand it, the Army had already started to accept that and the Marines are standing firm that they mm. really don't like that idea. But uh, hopefully, as you said, changes do start to exist. And certainly when I look at women in sports now and the way they're accepted now versus the way they were when I first started writing about women in sports, uh, it is a very dramatic change. And change takes a while to happen. So incremental, you know, what seems like incremental change when you're living it Actually, I guess, to be fair, when you look back over a longer range, is is pretty dramatic. And moving yeah. people's opinions does take time. Um, yeah. So we're, we're in the right track. Yeah, absolutely. So when you start to make the shift to more of the editorial side and then writing, and then you came up with your first book, where the audience for you start to shift more to women, what were you trying to accomplish? What was, what was driving you? Like, what was the awakening or the actions that you were trying to breathe life into? I guess we all need to have the images of who we can be. And I was probably of a generation where I was lucky enough that there were women ahead of me who had broken the ground yeah. and who had had the careers and who had who had mixed the careers and the families. So I didn't have to break that ground. But I think even as I look at, you know, young women in college right now, they're still struggling with those same issues and still trying to figure out what can we do and who can we be. And I was young enough as I was first writing that I was struggling with them and wanted to talk about it and, and lay the groundwork and say, look at what our possibilities are. Look mm -hmm. what we can do. You know, um, when I was back in the days when I was writing about sports, um, women's sports, it was, and this was not that long ago. So we're talking about maybe, oh, well, probably this now was, was maybe back to the 70s. But when the first women were allowed to run in the Boston Marathon, that sounds like ancient history now. But as I said, I think that was the 1970s. Yeah, just using the word, you know, quote, allowed, <laughs> allowed in that right. sentence is so bizarre right. to just even, you know, exactly. consider that. They were physically being thrown out of the marathon. A woman named Catherine Switzer, again, I'm pulling these names out of long ago history, I believe was the first woman to run the Boston Marathon. And she registered as Kay Switzer and was wearing a hat and nobody knew who oh, she no was. Kidding. And then the, the guy who was running, who was uh, the head of the Boston Marathon at the time, realized who she was halfway through the marathon and physically came in and threw her off the course. Oh my God. And again, that goes back to your question of what are we afraid of? You know, <laughs> what would be so terrible? And obviously that changed very quickly. And within the next few years, mm. the mar marathons were open to women. But here's what's startling. In that very short time, the speed at which a woman, the top woman could run a marathon improved by something like an hour. 
<laughs> within huge. about five years, right? right? Ridiculous. Right. You're normally talking about incremental changes of a right. minute. Right. <laughs> five minutes is huge. But when you don't know what you can do, and when you don't have a sense of what your possibilities are, you hold yourself back. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe that's the answer to your question of what was I trying to do? I was trying to say to people, you have these potentials, you have these mm. possibilities, you know? Yes, you can run a marathon an hour faster than you actually think you can. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. I remember years ago, I was friendly with a guy who was a camera guy for, I think it was ABC early in his career, and he covered a lot of sports. And he was sent to shoot the, I think it was the first ever Ironman triathlon in Hawaii. And his, his instruction was, we just want to cover the, you know, the lead guys. So he's basically, he's on the back of a motorcycle covering the lead guy, the whole race. The lead guy comes in, you know, he radios to his, you know, his boss, hey, like, what do I do now? Like, I don't know, just go find the lead woman and just like, you know, like shoot some footage, maybe B-roll or something like that. Th- that becomes this stunning story. I, I remember to this day because I met him years later, but I saw the footage on TV when they ran it. And her, the woman's name was Julie Moss. And... Oh my God, the most stunning story of Will as she was like hallucinating and losing control of her body and literally on her hands and knees clawing her way across the finish line. And this was this astonishing story that would never have actually been captured or told, but for the fact that somebody said, well, the dudes are already in, let's go grab some footage. And, you know, it's nice to see that I think in that window of time, you know, between then and now, that there is so much more emphasis on like, no, actually... Let's cover it all. Let's tell the stories of everybody. But I still think part of what I do with this is that I want to give equal, if not more, time to women that I sit down with and have conversations with. So over a window of time, you'll always find you know, pretty close to a 50-50 blend of men and women. And part of the reason I do that is because when my daughter was younger and I was you know, like reading her bedtime stories, they were all fables about the prince coming in and like saving them. And I was like, no, this can't happen. And I became aware of that dynamic, and it, it still, I think, exists in media. It's, there's a massive overbalance of coverage of men doing nearly identical challenge, physical tasks, and jobs as women, but men are the ones who are getting the airtime. I think it's a wrong that needs to be right, to be righted to a certain extent. Well, I'm so glad that you're aware of it and that you're you're trying to write it. Yeah. Um, but I also love that story of the Iron Woman. Um, yeah. Because aren't we just also inspired by those oh stories? Oh, my God. You know, I was you, in tears watching yeah, that. I yeah. literally like shaking and in tears watching that. When you see somebody pushing themselves to the limits, either of their physical or emotional capabilities, um, yeah. pushing themselves to the heights of, of what we can be, it's just such an inspiration because we don't do that, right? In our own yeah. lives, we, we don't push ourselves. Uh, and to see others who can just remind us of the potential that we do have. Yeah. And I think it reminds you, yeah, that there's a, like a spark of humanity that you see in those other people that you kind of see in yourself too. And you're like, huh, if they can, maybe we can. Right. I don't think I can do an Iron Man. Yeah, I don't yeah, think yeah. I can. <laughs> <laughs> At a more metaphoric knows, level, right? how's that? <laughs> so you go from TV sportscasting to more on the editorial side, but you actually kind of like keep a, a foot pretty strongly in the TV world as your career evolves. Right. In my career was always a balance between magazines and television and 
writing. And for a while, I used to think, oh, gosh, if only I had stayed with one of them, uh, it would have been better. But very shortly, all of media started to converge. And I realized that I had a great advantage by having done that. And also, I think I have a pretty short attention span. (laughs) I think that one reason that a lot of us are in journalism is because we're curious. And Mm. journalism gives you a great way to investigate something and to find out about it and then to move on. The downside of that, I think, is that sometimes you don't actually participate. You watch it from the outside and you think you've taken it in, but you always maintain that little bit of a distance. It's probably yeah. what I started to try to do differently when I was uh, was writing or when I was writing yeah. my most recent book. Yeah. I mean, that's so interesting that you say that because I think we're turning into a world of citizen journalists in terms of how we participate in so much of life and that, you know, it's not about the experience. It's about like the selfie of the experience. If you go to a concert It's not about the music. It's about, like, who can take the best footage of the concert, you know, and then share it the the fastest, you know, on YouTube. And I wonder what that's doing to our ability to actually just be present in the experience. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I haven't thought of it in terms of how it's changed the whole society, but I think that's absolutely correct. Because, as I said, certainly as a journalist, what you do is you maintain a bit of a a wary distance um, on something. And, And you need that, perhaps, to keep a bit of a critical eye, but it also does keep you from getting fully involved in the event. And you may be right that, uh, that if you're doing something only so you can report it on Facebook and take the great picture for Instagram, you're not as much in the moment of of living it and enjoying it. You want to see how others will respond to it rather than how you are. Yeah. Were were there times where you were working on a piece or story where it was so compelling and so visceral and so emotional that you really had to fight this? And you're like, I need to do something about this, but my job is to be objective. Like my job is not to do something about it to a certain extent. Yeah, I I haven't been in those circumstances necessarily where I was seeing tragedies or or dangers. So probably not that way. But certainly... Uh, you know, on the on the very different extreme, I've interviewed a lot of people, and I interviewed a lot of celebrities, both when I was uh, an editor at TV Guide and when I was editor-in-chief of Parade. And seeing people's lives and getting involved in people's lives is really is really interesting. Um, and then what happens is sometimes you get close to somebody for two days and you really feel like they're your best friend and then you never see them again <laughs> or you see them on the next junket or the next story that you're doing. And so it, it it's very interesting what the uh, what our, our connections are with other people and, uh, and how we come to know them or respond to them. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting too because, and tell me if this has been your experience at all, but it almost seems like your job is to dispassionately engage in order to tell a story that inspires the most compassion with those who experience the story. So there's this kind of like weird dynamic going yeah. on. You know, when I was at, uh, when I was editor of Parade, um, Parade at the time was a huge, huge platform. Right. Uh, we printed something like 35 million copies a week and, you know, 70 million people read it. Right. For those who don't know it, it's the Sunday magazine insert that was at the time in about 500 newspapers around the country. And it's much smaller now, of course, because because newspapers have, have disappeared. <laughs> uh, but at the time it was huge and you could pretty much get anybody to do anything. And probably one of my 
happiest uh, experiences there was right after Obama won the presidency for the first time. And I called his uh, his communications people and I asked if he would like to give, to write something for Parade on the Sunday before his inauguration, which of course is on a Tuesday. And they said, yeah, great idea, but hate to tell you this, he's actually going to say everything important at his inauguration and he doesn't mm-hmm. want to say it on the Sunday before. He doesn't want to scoop it. <laughs> right. So I said, okay. And they said, well, do you want to come up with something um, that he could do that might be different. So I said, yeah, I'll get right back to you. And I had like five minutes to come up with something. And I called them back and I said, how about if he writes a letter to his daughters um, about what he hopes for them for the next four years? And they said, wow. That's a great idea. We'll check. And of course, he liked it. And it was it was interesting because we were close to deadline uh, on closing the issue. Parade at the time closed three weeks before the magazine came out. And I kept calling the communications office and saying, um, I really need that piece. And, and um, at one point, I said, I'm really anxious to see it. And uh, the guy said... Yeah, we're anxious to see it, too. He's actually <laughs> writing this one. It's like the office is not writing it for him. He's actually doing the work. Huh. And uh, it came in, and it was just an absolutely beautiful piece. And, um, uh, you know, I'm an editor even for the president. I edit everything, uh, but I didn't. I think I changed two words on it. Mm. And it was just quite moving and quite wonderful. And, and um, a couple of years later, he actually turned it into a children's book mm. where he wrote it as uh, a letter to his daughters. And so I was pleased with that because it was a way of humanizing something yeah. and uh, having the president, a new president who was at the time seemed so exciting, come in and say something that everybody and their children could relate to. Yeah. So when you made the move, um, you know, eventually through TV Guide and you did a, you know, you had a pretty extensive career in TV production, then Parade Magazine. I mean, it's interesting because, like you said, you've experienced monumental shifts in your career in the media, even just in the you know the last that last stopping place at Parade, um, from the time you landed there to the time you left. I'm assuming it's a pretty substantial shift. What's your overall just sense of where media is headed these days? I know it's like a big amorphous, you know, like oracle-like question, but. But I'm curious because you've had some pretty extraordinary experience in such a depth and a variety of the way that stories are told. And I'm a little bit obsessed with storytelling. So I'm curious where, like what your sense is almost of like where we've been and if if you have a sense of where we're headed. You hit it when you said stories, because I think stories still are what matter. We Mm. still want to be emotionally involved in something. We still want to be moved by something. I think we don't trust people in the same way. We don't believe in the voice of something. It was funny when I first got to Parade, the CEO told me I had a particular story and I was doing it from two sides, you know, one two different uh, uh, viewpoints. And the CEO, who was an older guy and had been at Parade for many years and was really quite wonderful and, and had uh, had done fabulous things for Parade, but he came to me and he said, no, we don't do that at Parade. We have one voice and we have one point of view. Mm. And um, I realized that was sort of an old school, older school position yeah. uh, than I wanted to take. So I don't think we have that anymore. I don't think we listen to the, the evening news broadcaster as the knowing all voice. But we do want to hear stories and we do want to, we still care about people and we still want to be moved on an emotional level and uh, be involved. So, yeah, I, I don't know. The, I, I, if I had the answer, <laughs> I'd, I I, I'd be doing great. Podcasting <laughs> may be it. May be it. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I so agree. I think we're, you know, if you look back just in the way that we've communicated the most powerful things, you know, it's 
story's been the common thread. And I think it's told, I, it's interesting, in my short time in this world, it, I, I think I see the way that it's being told sort of emerging. Especially, it's like, I almost have this feeling like the pendulum is swinging back to like the family around the radio on a Sunday night, where there's a level of intimacy of listening that we're reverting back to that is supplanting the visual storytelling, at least on a day-to-day basis. And that may just be my biased lens <laughs> entirely, too, because that's what I like. But a lot of your of your work has been around storytelling and also telling the stories of women and powerful women and empowering women. So it was interesting. When I was doing a little bit of research on you, I pulled up the 1982 wedding announcement in the New York Times. <laughs> oh my gosh, you did way too much research. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting that, A, it appeared in the style section. <laughs> um, immediately interesting. The headline was something like, I'm trying to remember, Miss Kaplan weds a physician. <laughs> and then in the middle of it, it was pretty short. It, it says, you know, like Janice Kaplan will be keeping her, you know, her last name. And I was like, the phrasing, the fact that it, it's in the style section and that headline where it's like, doesn't wed, you know, the name of your you know, husband, but, quote, a physician. It, it was, I was, what was that communicating? <laughs> well, first of all, I am so impressed. You know, like everybody else in the world, I have Googled myself many times, <laughs> many times. And I have never come up with that New York Times <laughs> Marriage announcement. So I guess I'll have to dig deeper. Um, I, I don't actually remember that. I did indeed wed a physician. That that is correct. Uh, I don't know why the Times would have I would have put it that way. The, the funny thing was that when we got married, I told my husband that I was marrying him, even though he was a doctor. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and he said, "Oh no, my mother always assumed the only reason anybody would marry me was because I right. was a doctor." Like, I said, "No." Why didn't even go to med school? I want to be an artist. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's so funny. Oh, so that's interesting. The Times made that decision. Yeah, no, I certainly certainly had not written anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's again, it's sort of like a really interesting just commentary on the evolution of media. When on one of the first dates that I had with my husband, we were uh we had gone out, I don't remember where, and then we had gone for a drink afterwards at the uh at the uh, Palace Hotel, which has a big grand at the time, I don't know if it still does, has a big grand staircase coming down. And we were sitting sort of at the bottom of the staircase having a drink. And I looked up and I said, oh, there's Barbara Walters. She was walking down the stairs. And the man who was to become my husband said, who's Barbara Walters? I thought, <laughs> Perfect. I thought, this could be a really interesting life. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So kind of coming full circle a, a little bit, we're hanging out here today and it's uh, shortly after um, a new book of yours has come out. And the book is an exploration of a year in your life, but it's really also a conversation about a much bigger topic, something that has been in the sort of public sphere of interest and started been increasingly heavily researched and things like that for a while now, and that's gratitude. And I want to dive into some of um, your personal experience and what you actually did for a year because it's kind of fun and fascinating. But one of the bigger questions for me is because it's a topic that has gotten a lot of ink over the last couple of years. And you're somebody who's sort of like deeply aware of the media and the market around it. What in your mind sort of led you to think there's something that hasn't been discussed that I think would be really compelling? 
I think happiness was very much in the zeitgeist for a number of years. There were all sorts of big happiness books and some very successful happiness books, and there became a whole happiness movement. Yeah, no doubt. And we were all supposed to be happy. And it started to strike me that happiness was a bit ephemeral, that much of happiness, and, and some of these books, by the way, were quite excellent and really dug deep, and, and I do admire them. But in some ways, happiness was a little bit about waiting for the events that would make us happy. Mm. And I think if you wait for events to make you happy, you can be waiting for a really long time. And, you know, you've been kind enough to mention my career, and, and uh, I certainly have had a, a great career. And I don't think I ever felt that. I think I was always thinking about what I hadn't accomplished and what else I could do and always looking forward and always thinking about the next step and the next thing that I was going to do. And, you know, we also were talking about my husband. I have a great husband. I don't think I appreciated him either. I, you know, I, there, there are lots of other people out there. Your eyes are always wandering. I don't mean literally, but, you know, just you're always living with the other person that you might have been. And mm. I started to realize that I was just doing that too much. And from the outside, people were always telling me what a great career I had and what a great life I had and how lucky I was. And I was wondering why I didn't feel that way. And I think it wasn't just me. I think so many of us feel like we're not quite doing what we should and that there are other people who are doing something more and that life can be more and what are we missing? And we're always looking for something that perhaps we're looking in the wrong place for. And it really took that pausing and thinking about, okay, what is happiness? What does make you happy? And if it's not those events, if it's not that list on the resume, and my resume is as good as anybody's, and if it's not that family, and my family's as good as anybody's, what is it? And it really made me stop and think about how do you refocus and how do you rethink what's going to uh, to be really meaningful to you? Yeah. So that led you not just to explore the topic of gratitude, but also to make an unusual commitment and experiment. But it also, I guess it kicked off partly also um, with some research that you were sort of involved in. Right. I got involved with the John Templeton Foundation shortly after I left Parade, and uh, they gave me a grant to do a survey on gratitude, a big national survey on gratitude. And it was interesting, but it, was, it wasn't um, a deeply emotional topic for me at the time. I was right. doing it as an interesting project. And the results came in, and there were interesting findings like that... 90% or so of people thought that being grateful made you more happy, uh, made you happier. And that a similar number thought that um, when asked if they were grateful for their family and friends said, absolutely, you know, grateful for family and friends. But then when we asked people about expressing gratitude, the numbers plunged and mm. we were at, you know, under half said that they expressed gratitude. So great. This was a great finding for me. You know, I called it the gratitude gap, and I wrote about it, and I went on TV talking about it. Um, but it really took a while for it to sink in um, right. on a personal level. It was still level. like data for other people. Absolutely. All those <laughs> other people. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What we were talking about before. All those other people who aren't grateful. <laughs> and, and at some point, it did sink in. And it did strike me that, oh, maybe that's what I should be focusing on. Maybe all this data could actually turn into something that would have an effect on me and have mm. an effect on how I feel. And so that was the genesis of it. Yeah. And what did that lead you to do? <laughs> well, I decided to, um, after I had done, I had spent a fair amount of time after doing that survey of doing more research on gratitude. And then I decided uh, on a New Year's Eve that I would try to spend the next year living gratefully. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was a New Year's Eve. I was at a nice New York party and I was wearing my nice little black dress and holding my glass of champagne and, and midnight was coming. And 
it had been a perfectly nice year. You know, there was nothing that had gone wrong. Um, but I tried to imagine what I wanted in the year ahead. Mm. And I couldn't actually think of anything. And that kind of scared me. You know, it was like I didn't have anything that I really desperately thought was going to make me happy mm. uh, in the coming year. And so that was a moment where I realized, well, it's not the events that are going to happen. You know, I'm not going to win the lottery. I'm not going to move to Hawaii. And even if I do those things, I'll find reasons to undermine them, <laughs> you know, and, and why if they've happened, they're not as good as they should be. And so maybe I need to take what I've just learned about gratitude and actually turn it into a year um, where I think about gratitude and I research it and I try to figure out what it means and I try to actually live more gratefully. And because I'm a journalist, I couldn't just kind of go ahead and do this right. as a, you know, a <laughs> memoir kind of thing. So I set it up with different categories for each month. And for I actually did it by seasons that uh, I would start with family and friends. And then I did work and then I did health and fitness. And then uh, sort of the fourth quarter, I did uh, the bigger the bigger world. And uh, it started and um, it became something so much more dramatic than I had really anticipated. It really just so quickly started to change my whole attitude and my whole perspective that I was just really excited to get to do it. Yeah, and I, I kind of want to walk through those seasons with you a little bit because mm -hmm. I think there's some interesting stories to share and some interesting data. Let's just kind of explore. Let's move through the seasons together. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you mentioned family as one of the places where you really explored gratitude and its application. And so you're, you're married, you're a parent, I'm assuming you have friends too and colleagues. <laughs> what were the big awakenings for you in sort of that season? Well, the biggest one was with my husband. And um, you mentioned my marriage announcement, so you know I've been married for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I have a great husband, but I sort of stopped noticing him. And I think we do that in marriages. You know, our spouses become kind of the background uh, rather than what we focus on. And, you know, psychologists have a fancy name for it. They call it habituation, that mm. uh, that no matter what you want or think you think you want, once you have it, it becomes, you get used to it. You get habituated to it. And um, so I decided that I was going to, for that first month, for January, bring my husband not from the background, very much into the foreground. And I was just going to start noticing the things that he did. It started uh, one uh, Friday night. We were driving up. We were lucky enough to have a country house up in Connecticut. And we were driving up there, as we usually do on Friday night. And we pulled into the driveway. And I said, honey, thanks for driving. And he said, I always drive. And I said, yeah, I know you always drive. But, you know, it's dark. It's snowing. I really hate to drive. And I'm lucky that you drive. So thank you. And he didn't say much more. And that was fine. And then a couple of other times in the course of the weekend, I thanked him for little things that he normally did, or I appreciated something that he said. And there started to be a different vibe just over that one little weekend. And I didn't tell him at that point what I was doing. And by Sunday night, uh, we had dinner and he said to me, oh, thanks for cooking. And I said, I always cook. <laughs> um, but it was, and that at that point, we started talking about, about what was going on. And, and it became a little bit of a joke, you know, in that first right. month. It's a little bit awkward, you know, to be yeah. thanking your husband or your spouse or your wife or whoever. And, and, you know, we would laugh about it. And I would, he would get up in the morning and he would get dressed. And I would tell him how great he looked. And he would say, do I really? Or is this for the book? And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so at first, we, we, it was a, a little bit of a joke. But then it became part of our lives. And, mm. um, and appreciating each other became part of our lives. And it's almost hard to explain how dramatically 
that affected us. And again, because I was doing research, I started calling uh, marriage counselors around the country and asking them if I could be if I was crazy. And I and I spoke to one in particular in um, in Illinois who had done a lot of research into this. And he started explaining to me and and sent me some research on actually the neural pathways in the brain mm-hmm. and how they start to change when we're grateful or express loving feelings. And you know, it makes sense. It's like anything else. If you lift weights, right, your biceps are going to get stronger. If you start using the neural pathways for love and gratitude, they're going to get stronger and become uh, and become more more potent in your life. And uh, he told me that one of the things he has done with couples for years and years is tell them to send an email to each other every day. And it's just a simple fill in the blank. And the first part of it is one thing you did today that I appreciated was and just fill it in. And he told me that he always does this every day. Now, he's also married to a marriage counselor. And so I said to him, hello, why can't you just tell her? Um, And, you know, his answer was, I always mean to, but the day gets busy. And I'm about to say something and a kid screams or the dog barks or the phone rings and, and then it goes away and we're eating dinner and something else is happening. And if you just take that time to pause and and know that once a day you're going to appreciate the person who you're married to and is supposed to care about more than anybody else, it's really going to make a difference. And, and it did. Yeah. And it's amazing to think that it's not a grand gesture that we're talking about. We're talking about like just the smallest little momentary acknowledgements. One of the things that comes up for me uh, around this, and it's not just gratitude practices, it's, it's a lot of other things around the sort of positive psychology work. You brought up this term habituation. So we kind of habituate to great people just being there, you know, to the person driving or the other person cooking, just because that's the roles that you, and we kind of, you know, assume that, well, they know that I appreciate that. I don't have to keep saying it. So my, my question is, I'm curious whether you experienced this or whether in your research, you came upon research on this. Do we also habituate to a state of gratitude? So like if you start saying all these things to your husband or like sending that email every day, do we habituate to that and it no longer has the same effect at some point? That's an interesting question. I I don't actually know the answer to it, but I think it may not have the same dramatic effect. But if you can make your baseline a little different, think how good we all are at criticizing. Mm. And, you know, we all know that our spouses could be so much better if only they would listen to us a little bit more. And so we always have great suggestions for them and for our kids, too. And so sometimes that becomes the baseline in the house um, for our kids, that they come home and they think, if I say this, mom isn't mom or dad isn't necessarily going to say why it's great, but is going to say how I could do it better yeah. and what the next step is. Right. It's like, oh, you got to be, well, like, what? how can we get an A? Right. Yeah. Or, you know, if you're, we all do that. If, yeah. if 10 great things happen in a day and one bad thing happens, we tend to focus on the bad. We ask our kids, if, if our kids are telling us things and one, a teacher made one negative comment, we could, we'll just focus on that negative comment and try to find out more about it rather than shrugging it off and looking at the positive. So I think it just becomes very much what you end up focusing on. And if you habituate to the positive things, I think that's probably a better state to be in and puts you in a better position to be able to mm-hmm. to uh, function. Yeah. And, and maybe even just as you're speaking where my mind was going, maybe even if you do habituate to a certain extent, just the, the practice of constantly noticing yourself, you know, within, heading towards that negativity bias, which our brains are through some quirk of survival, you know, oriented towards and just like repeatedly pulling yourself back to it. No, but this is, this is great. Like this happened the way that I wanted it to happen or this 
kind of constantly the practice of of bringing you back to the place of gratitude. Even just that sort of like creating a perpetual shift to acknowledging what's right rather than you admiring yourself and what's not right has got to have a lot of benefit. I think so. And I think that's exactly what has been most important for me. Yeah. Uh, you know, my, my actual year of living gratefully ended almost a year ago now. And what I've been able to hold on to more than anything else is that ability to reframe things mm. and to find myself annoyed or frustrated about something and to stop. And again, it doesn't have to be soft and sappy and, oh, the world is a beautiful place. And, you know, I, I did one uh, radio interview in the, and the, uh, interviewer said, tell me four things you're grateful for right this minute. Mm-hmm. And I, I I thought, that's not really what gratitude is. <laughs> it's, it's not that I'm sitting here, oh, and I'm grateful for this and I'm grateful for that, because that's just, that's just not who I am. And I think it's not who most of us are. But if we can find ourselves in a situation, whether at work or at home, where, and, and stop ourselves and say, okay, maybe it's terrible. Maybe this is just a, like a really rotten day, but um, I want to just stop and find a moment of something that I can appreciate and mm. stop and really just have a slightly different perspective on it. Because I think we tend to think that we're smarter and better and more intellectual if we're negative, um, <laughs> and that we sound so much smarter if we're complaining about something. And if we remind ourselves that actually, I think many of us do our best work when we're positive, uh, mm. not when we're negative. Yeah, I so agree. And we could, we could probably go down the whole rabbit hole of negativity bias and media, but I think maybe we'll just set that aside. So the, the first season was really sort of based around how acknowledging gratitude, bring gratitude more into day-to-day relationships, change things. Beyond your husband, did you notice sort of a, a broader impact or were there specific things that you did or moments or stories that emerged that really stayed with you? Well, I noticed it with a lot of friends because I found that when I would tell people that I was writing about gratitude, their instant reaction would be, oh, that's great. I, I should do more of that. Um, it's like we all have an instinct. Right. That, it's like, yeah. well, I put it on my list. Right. <laughs> exactly. Check it today. That's Good. Right. We, we, should, we, should do, we should do better on that. But there are some people who didn't get it. And I have one friend who, I, who is, is a very negative person. She's lovely and, and delightful and upbeat in most ways. But if there's a negative to talk about in any situation, she will find it. And after a while, I was finding it almost unbearable to be with her. And Mm. I kept pointing it out to her. I kept saying, you know, trying to turn around what uh, what she was complaining about if it was you know that she had to she had her office had just moved and she was way downtown and she had to take the subway and she hated taking the subway yes but you have a great job <laughs> you know let's focus on this great job that you've had for so long um and and i think some people just are resistant to that and and don't want to hear that and want you to realize how difficult their lives are and she did come around and i think she's appreciated that and and we can we can joke about that a no. lot i had one very close friend who was really worried that I was going to lose my edge completely and that this was going to turn me just so soft and sappy and that I was not going to be ambitious anymore. And she's a very, very successful real estate entrepreneur in the city and has built some great buildings um, and done some big projects. And it took her a while to come around also. And it was it was difficult uh, in some ways, but I liked it because she was always challenging me. And mm. and I knew that for me, gratitude couldn't be a pat on the back. And it couldn't be something that was just placating. If at the end of the year, I ended up saying, oh, yes, everything is lovely, that was not going to be 
uh, successful. So I had to come to terms with, and perhaps she helped me do it, with the idea that gratitude and ambition can coexist, and that you can appreciate what you have now and still want more or other or, or uh, you know, have ambition to go ahead. But what gratitude does is it lets you stop and appreciate what you have when you have it, rather than looking back at it 10 years later and saying, gee, I wish I had appreciated that. Mm, yeah, that notion of, of gratitude and ambition coexisting, I think is so powerful because I think we're taught from a young age the exact opposite. It's sort of like, you know, kid comes home from school, well, you get what you get and you don't get upset. Mm-hmm. You know, just be grateful for what you have. So it's almost like the, you know, the part of the silent part of that teaching is, and if you want more, you know, then that's, that's not good. That means that you're not being grateful for what you have. Whereas like, I love that, you know, and and I completely agree with the whole idea of, you can be immensely grateful for where you are and what you have. And at the same time, want more, you know? And if you think about it on a societal scale too, it's like, sure, you know, we got this legislation passed. I'm so grateful we got it, or we have the peace thing going on, or we made really great inroads. But there's a lot more, and I'm grateful for that. I'm happy that we're in a better place than we were. And I don't want to say but, I want to say and there's more work to be done. And that's okay. You can still have that coexisting. And I think, I feel like the seed is planted that those two can't really coexist in, in so many of us at a young age. Yeah, I, I think that's great and, and, and absolutely correct. And I, I hadn't thought of that in terms of kids, but you're right. When kids come home and they ask for something or want something, an answer may be, oh, just be grateful for what you have. Yeah. And, and that's not the answer because figuring out how you can get something else or why you want something else is okay. And I think uh, in, the, in that survey that I mentioned before, we found that one of the places people are least likely to be grateful is at work. And that comes both from up and down. Um, bosses do not say thank you. They don't want to express gratitude. And What's behind that? Uh, well, I think it's that fear that, um, first of all, they think they're showing that they're powerful by not saying thank you. Hmm. And they have this idea that they're showing that they have higher expectations, that you are just doing what you're supposed to do. Hmm. And they think that that's motivating people. I'll tell you one story about that. I was out having uh, dinner with a friend of mine who's a, a partner at a big corporate law firm. And um, he made a call during dinner. It was maybe eight o'clock at night. And he was obviously talking to one of his young associates. And he said, I want that on my desk at uh, eight o'clock tomorrow morning. And he hung up and I said, so is that guy pulling an all-nighter for you? And he said, yeah, I I need that tomorrow. And I said, you're going to say, this was at the end of my year of gratitude, let me make clear. (laughs) And I said, uh, said, are you going to say thank you to him when you come in tomorrow? He said, no, it's his job. I said, I know it's his job, but he's staying up all night for you. Are you going to say thank you? And he said, probably not. And I said, okay, here's an idea. Why don't you stop at Starbucks on the way in and buy him a cup of coffee and come in and put it down on his desk and say, great job. Thanks for staying up all night. And my lawyer friend got it and he he laughed and he said, yeah, I guess if I give him coffee, he'll stay up for the rest of the day. That's a great idea. Um, but but the point is that we forget that, that, yeah, this young associate, it was his job to do this and it was his job to pull an all-nighter that night. But we also want to be appreciated. We want We want our work to be meaningful and we find fulfillment by people appreciating what we do. And I think executives are making such a mistake in not understanding that people will work harder for you if you say thank you to them. Uh, People are happy for that. And that's a motivator. It's not a demotivator. And so many executives, I I talk about this in the book, when I spoke to them about this, they would say, well, we say thank you with a paycheck. 
And, uh, you know, that's sort of a line from Mad Men. I think Don Draper says, <laughs> says something very similar in Mad Men. And the answer should be, no, we don't say thank you with a paycheck. We say we're paying you with a paycheck. We say thank you with thank you. They're, yeah. they're different things. Yeah, no, I, that, that resonates so powerfully with me because people don't work for a page. I mean, of course we work because we have, you know, we want money and we want what it buys and we want, you know, the whatever illusion of security and certainty it gives us. But fundamentally, people don't, you don't get the best of people for a paycheck, you know, and, and people don't devote themselves to a worthwhile call. I mean, if you think about the enterprises where people put the most on the line, it's when they're actually not getting paid. It's the causes, it's the movements, it's the revolutions, you know, it has nothing, and they will work harder and sometimes like sacrifice themselves in physical and emotional ways. They would never begin to sacrifice for a paycheck, you know, because there's something bigger on the line. I I so agree with you. I think, you know, it's, we, we want to be acknowledged and thanked, you know, Um, we do it because there's something intrinsic going on, but there's also that pat on the back feels good. Right. Yeah, no, we, we need to, I, I agree that, you know, we put, we, so many of us put time, huge amounts of time into things that aren't being paid. And of course, we need a base level of fair pay. And, and I'm not arguing against that yeah. in any way. But, Nor am I. But, we both live in New York right. City. So. <laughs> but, but one has to compliment the other. Yeah. And uh, somebody told me a story about um, that uh, she was doing a, a project for somebody and uh, was uh, being paid on a monthly basis for it. And she was really dedicated to it. And she really cared about proving that she was doing this right and and doing the best for for this uh, person. And then um, as the project started nearing its end, he decided he wanted her to work harder. And he thought he would motivate her by giving it, putting it to an hourly basis. Mm. So he changed it from paying her per month to paying her per hour. And she said he completely misunderstood. It completely demotivated her Mm. because she was driven by trying to have the project right. And by having his appreciation and having the person she was working with, you know, pleased with what she was doing, when it was turned into an hourly wage, it just became a job. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and that really changes it. Yeah, it's like all that research that uh, Dan Pink shared in Drive about how doing something intrinsically and then you introduce an extrinsic motivator and it destroys the motivation. Even when you pull it back away again, it doesn't come back. Mm-hmm. Um, you also explored gratitude in really the context of health and vitality, and also gratitude like does talk to me a little bit about some of your exploration around what it actually does to you from a mindset and a physiological standpoint. Well, there's been a lot of um, research. Just to, it, it's become an, a topic of research only in the last few years, and some of the research has found that gratitude um, lowers your blood pressure, decreases stress, which is pretty obvious, um, helps you sleep better, just has all sorts of powerful physical effects. And we shouldn't be surprised. We yeah. know that there are mind-body effects in just about everything that we do. There's been a lot of interesting research showing how gratitude and positive emotions can actually affect the immune system. And I was really, really struck by that. And, uh, you know, it, it, it makes sense, and it's, it's fairly complicated in a way that I won't get into right now. But um, but it makes sense that our immune system can sense our emotions, right? Because historically, if we were feeling fear, it probably meant that something physical was going to happen to us, that, you know, a, a spear was going to be right. in our belly before too long. And so the immune system had to know to gear up to emotions like fear and anxiety. Now, when we feel fear, it's more likely because we're, you know, 
talking to our boss or we're being unfriended on Facebook. And <laughs> our immune system doesn't really need to, to gear up for that. And it turns out that, again, positive emotions like gratitude pretty much send a message to the immune system to calm down. <laughs> and it lowers the inflammation in the body. And inflammation has effects on things like headaches and stomach aches, yeah. uh, strokes, heart attacks. It's sort of being identified these days as like a major culprit in almost everything. Exactly. Yeah. And so, again, we don't necessarily know how all of this works, uh, the specifics of it, but um, but the early findings on it are pretty, pretty strong and, and powerful. Yeah. And there's no downside. <laughs> Except for, I mean, but it's interesting that your friend brought up the potential downside of, you know, like, quote, losing your, your edge. Right, right. Um, because I think that's actually probably in a lot more people's minds than we acknowledge. I think so. I, I think people think that if they're grateful, they're just going to sound silly. Like and that Pollyannish. Exactly. And, yeah. and that they're not going to be able to be powerful. Right. And uh, and I think that that's probably the key message that I would want to bring, that no, gratitude makes you more powerful. Yeah. Um, it, it makes people rally around you. Bosses are more successful when people like them and, and want to support them and want to help them. Um, we're better in our marriage and our personal lives when we're positive and we're looking for the positive. I mean, who do you want to be around? Uh, you want to be around the people who say nice things to you or the people who are always negative? <laughs> yeah, depends if you're an artist or not. Right? <laughs> but I've actually had that conversation specifically with artist friends where they think that, you know, there has to be a certain amount of, of you know, like persistent cloud and all, also negativity and suffering mm -hmm. um, for them to be at their best. And yeah, I, at least from the research that I've seen, that's not true. I think you need to engage with life to have experiences, you know, to be able to actually mine for the way you express your art. But it doesn't necessarily have to involve fierce negativity and suffering. You know, it can be based around some pretty extraordinary things. Right. Absolutely. Um, so let's come full circle a little bit. Um, name of this is Good Life Project. So if I offer that term out to you, to live a good life, what comes up? Wow. Um, I, I think living a good life is really what do you decide you want your life to be. And a good life can really, in terms of the actual things that happen, can be just about anything. But to me, and maybe it's because I've been so focused on gratitude the last few years, um, the good life is finding the bright sides in life. I interviewed so many people for this book who had had really horrible things happen to them in terms of tragedies, illness, loss of children, uh, death, horrible, horrible events, and who were able to tell me how grateful they were that a spouse had been there for them, that their friends had been around, that they were able to do positive things afterwards. Is it a good life when you've had a terrible tragedy in it? Well, again, we don't control that. And I think the good life is what you can do with what you've been handed, that there's so much we think we can control a lot more of our lives than we can, but I think so much of it is random. And our ability to take the positive from whatever we can find and try to make put positivity into the world and make the world a better place that way is, to me, the, the way that we can all have a better life. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you found something valuable, entertaining, engaging, or just plain fun... I'd be so appreciative if you take a couple extra seconds and share it. Maybe you want to email it to a friend. Maybe you want to share it around social media. Or even be awesome if you'd head over to iTunes and just give us a rating. Every little bit helps get the word out and it helps more people get in touch with the message. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.